Well, you can join me in opening your Bibles to the book of Ephesians, and I know many of you are using the uh, Ephesians booklet or Ephesians journal. If you um, look around and you see people near you who have a little booklet that's black and it's just the book of Ephesians, and you've not gotten one of those before, we have those available for you. So at some point, maybe after the service, you can stop by the welcome counter, talk to John Supik, and he can grab you one. If you would like another one, or if you'd like to get one for friends, we have those available for $2 at the resource corner as well. So feel free to grab um, some of those uh, for that suggested donation, and um, then you can I give those to others as well. So let's read from Ephesians chapter 3 in just a few moments. But before we do, um, I think all of us at some time or another, maybe all the time, uh, are, become aware that we want and we need more, more of God, uh, more joy, uh, more strength from Him. And it's true that whether or not we're aware of it, it is true that every single one of us in this room can experience more of God, more of His love, more of His presence, more of His transforming power in your life, more joy from Him. There's more to know of Jesus Christ. And this is really what the book of Ephesians is about. So, for those of you who have been tracking with the sermons these past several weeks, or you've been immersing yourself in the book, I've been so encouraged, by the way, at how many of you are doing this daily, either reading a chapter every day and resetting every week, or reading through the whole book, or memorizing it with others. Um, so, if you've been immersing yourself in this book, isn't this at the heart of what this book's about, about more? That there, you know, just when we, we might think we know about the blessings God gives to us in salvation, and Ephesians says there's more. We might think we know who Jesus is, and Ephesians says He's greater than you thought, and there's more of Him to know. You might have thought that you knew about God's power at work in making you become a Christian and opening your eyes to see Jesus and giving you a new heart, and Ephesians says it's more powerful than you were thinking. There's more power available to you. You might have thought, yeah, I've figured out what it means to live as a Christian. I've learned how to apply God's grace in my life. And Ephesians says, no, there's more. There's more of your life that seems to be relatively untouched by the gospel's transforming power. There's more um, to know of Jesus and more ways to transform, be transformed by Him. So, if we think that we've kind of arrived as a Christian, Ephesians says, no, you haven't. Uh, there is more. And so, we're going to look at a prayer that's at the, begin, the middle of this letter that Paul wrote to these Christians in Ephesus, and this prayer is about spiritual acceleration. So, it's as though that we've kind of moved into the Christian life as though we're thinking we've entered into a golf cart, which is going to, you know, save a bit of time, help us move a little more quickly, uh, but it's really more like we've gotten into an Indy car, and we've been kind of just going about 10 miles an hour, and we have no idea what this thing's capable of. And this prayer is here to help us have an expanded vision of who God really is and the more that He has to offer us. So, let's read together Ephesians chapter 3, beginning in verse 14 to the end of the chapter. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of His glory, He may grant you to be strengthened with power through His Spirit in your inner being, 
so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we can ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Why don't we pray in light of this before we look at it more closely. Our Father, we come to you expectantly and hopefully, and we bring our need and our weakness to you, and we pray that the realities that you have spoken of here in your word that we've just read would become uh, experienced by us. We pray that you would help us to have an increased capacity to know Jesus and to be satisfied in him. We pray that we would be strengthened even in these minutes together, strengthened in our inner being by the power of the Spirit so that Christ would dwell in our hearts through faith. So we pray that you would do this. We pray that you would transform us on the spot here. We pray that some of us who came this morning would leave surprised at what you did in their mind and heart in this time together. We pray that we would leave surprised that you did above and beyond what we were asking even now and above and beyond anything we could ask or think. We pray that we would be surprised by the way that you can encourage us through your word and comfort us and convict us and transform us. And we pray that this would be a reality not just in our time together, but throughout this week and in everyday life that you would surprise us by doing above and beyond anything we can ask or think. So please help us to ask and think for more and then to do more even in that. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this text, just looking at where it shows up in the letter of Ephesians, you can see that it's kind of roughly in the middle, and it's intriguing that it's a prayer in the middle of a letter. So this is kind of like a bridge um, between the first half and the second half of Ephesians. So we've spent the first couple months in this series on this first half of Ephesians, in Ephesians 1 through 3, and that has been about gospel doctrine, the truth of God's grace to us in Jesus. It has been a sustained celebration of the triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit, and the lavish blessings that He gives us through Jesus Christ. And then now, our text is a bridge between that first half and the second half of Ephesians. And the second half of Ephesians, the chapters 4 through 6, are all about how to live in light of gospel doctrine, in light of the truth of the gospel, in light of who God is and who we are as Christians as we believe in Jesus. It's about how the truth of the gospel applies to every aspect of our lives. And so, in between these two halves is this hinge, this bridge, which is this prayer. So, what does that show us? Well, it shows us that prayer in general and this kind of prayer in particular is the doorway into a transformed life. This is the doorway between 
knowing the truth of the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, knowing the truth of who God is and how kind He is to us in Jesus, knowing the truth of His plan for all of redemptive history to unite everything in and under the kingship of Jesus. This is the bridge between knowing the truth of those things and letting that truth get burrowed into our hearts and transform our thinking, our feeling, our living in everyday life. So this is the doorway between knowing who Jesus is and being transformed by Him. And this is for everyone. Notice in verse 18, it says that this is for all the saints. This is not just for a limited few. This transformation and power that we're going to see here is not just for certain kinds of Christians. It's not just for certain kinds of churches, for small churches where everyone knows everyone, or for big churches, or for city churches, or rural churches. It's for every kind of church and every kind of Christian everywhere. And so this is a prayer essentially for this, for strength to know God's love to such a degree that we would experience more from Him, that we'd experience His presence more. So Paul's essentially giving two main requests here and a praise. So two prayers and a praise, and each one shows us to seek more from God. So we'll consider each one here. So this is about three things. It's about experiencing more of Christ's presence, grasping more of Christ's love, and expecting more from God's power. So let's consider each one here. We'll just walk through this prayer. First, experiencing more of Christ's presence. This first request is in verses 16 to 17. You can read it with me. He prays that according to the riches of His glory, He may grant you to be strengthened with power through His Spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. So the request is that, just to to narrow down the focus here, the, the request itself is that the Father may grant you to be strengthened with power in your inner being. So that's the prayer, for Christians to be strengthened with power. What does that assume? Obviously, we need this. It assumes we're weak. It assumes we need to be strengthened, and we need to be strengthened by God. We can't do this to ourselves. And this is showing that the most important kind of strength we need is not physical strength. That's important, but it's not what's most important. Of most importance is inner strength. So this is something that any one of us can have. It has nothing to do with the amount of external strength we have. It has nothing to do with the amount of success that we have accomplished or our physique or our skill or our wealth or our appearance. This is about our inner being. Paul also calls it in verse 17, our heart. Our inner person is our heart. The word heart in the Bible, it's the, the one the Bible most uses most often to refer to this, the core of our personality, kind of the essential part of, our, of who we are, the essence of who we are. It's your motivational control system. And so Paul prays that this inner being, this heart of yours, this motivational core center, uh, the depths of who you are, he prays that that, that your heart would be strengthened with power. Why? Verse 17 gives the purpose. So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. So, I mean, just think about this, the the order here. 
We need to be strengthened with power in our inner being. Why? So that Christ can dwell in our hearts through faith. In other words, we need to be strengthened because we cannot handle the presence of Christ without it. Think about this. What does it mean for Christ to dwell in our hearts? Well, our hearts are the core of who we are. This is the the place of our deepest desires and motivations and values. So what does it mean for Christ to dwell there? Well, it means that He's making a home in the core of our personality. He's becoming central to our thoughts and our lives. He's becoming central to what we desire and what we value. So think about what happens to a house if an owner leaves it for a few decades. I mean, have you seen those kind of pictures that take a picture every few years of an abandoned house and just how quickly that house becomes overrun? It gets run down, animals move in, it starts collapsing, bushes start growing into it. And what happens if the owner returns and wants to dwell in there again? Well, that house will need to get renovated. It needs to get reordered. It needs to get strengthened. This is what needs to happen to us. We all put ourselves at the center of our lives, and when we trust Christ, we begin to see Him, to recognize Him as central to the world, to the universe, to our own lives. And so we acknowledge that He's to rule us, that we're no longer our own, but we're God's. And so we invite Him to dwell with us and in us and in the core of who we are. But that doesn't mean that everything is ready for Him in our hearts. Our whole life is really the process of being renovated so that more and more of Christ can dwell in our hearts through faith, so He can dwell more fully in our hearts. And this, can, this reality can happen as a church as well. So in Revelation chapter 3, Jesus is giving these messages to different churches. And this final church, the church of Laodicea, there's, um, well actually there's many churches and many problems in many churches. So let's focus on one church. One of these churches um, Jesus goes to and He's knocking on the door and He's asking to be let in. Right, that's not necessarily the door of our hearts, that's the door of the church. In other words, a whole community can over time start out having Jesus central and then start to get really excited about all sorts of good things. And over time, Jesus gets displaced. And over time, Jesus gets pushed outside and they don't even know it. And then Jesus starts knocking and he says, open to me. And if anyone does, I'll come in and I'll dine with him, make my home with you as well. So both individually and as churches, what we need is God's strength in our inner being, so that Christ can become central in our hearts. He can dwell in our hearts. So for some of us this morning, Christ has never dwelt in your heart. Your heart is still the place where you and you alone are most central. Or it's the place where something else or someone is most central in your heart. Maybe you're driven by success or a certain kind of wealth and lifestyle or a certain kind of position in a workplace, or family, and having an ideal family life. And you've put these things, even these good things, at the center of your heart. And this morning, you are invited to open up and let Christ dwell in your heart, to become central to you, and then reorder life around Him, and then experience the beginnings of the way that life was always meant to be with flourishing and joy and hope and peace with Christ at the center.
For others of us, and all the rest of us, this is then about more. I mean, you may be thinking, I already have this. I know Christ. I'm a Christian. He dwells with me. But look at this prayer. I mean, who's Paul writing to? Who's Paul praying for? He's praying for a church that he's assuming is full of Christians and many mature Christians who have been this way for many years. And he's praying for them with a sense of urgency. He's praying for them that Christ would dwell in their hearts. So here's what that means. It means that we may need this more than we know. We have very small capacities right now for Christ dwelling in our hearts, and and we don't often even have self-awareness to know just how much we need this. So some of us have invited Christ in, but it's kind of like we've let Him in the front room, you know, the room you always keep really clean, doesn't get messed up at all. We've invited Him in right in. Make yourself at home. This is my life. This is how, this is what, yeah, the rest of the house is just like this, right? You just stay here, and then we go into the rest of the house and, and live our life, and then on Sunday mornings, we check in on Him and see if He's still okay with us, right? Um, but this is about Christ dwelling in our hearts, renovating the whole home for Christ's presence to be central 24-7 in every aspect of your life, not leaving one bit out, not even that closet that you shove things into. So Paul's praying for this church with many well-established Christians, and that means that no one has yet arrived. It means that this prayer is for you, and you need this more than you know, and I need this more than I know. Even if you hear that and you think, no, 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 I know, my, I know I'm desperate. We don't even know this to the degree we do. We need God to even help us understand just how much we need Him. There's always more, and this is good news because it means that we haven't leveled off. Whatever we've experienced, if we feel somewhat bored and ho-hum, that's a problem with us, not Christ. There's more of Him. And so we need to pray that we'd be strengthened in our inner being for more of Him. So this is for all of us to keep diving deeper. So that's the first request, that our hearts would be strengthened for a greater welcome toward Christ. Second request is for us to grasp more of Christ's love. I say grasp because this is about more than just learning new information. It's about more than just getting more than just getting new ideas or additional ideas in our minds about Jesus. It includes that, but this is experiential as well. So the second request is in verses 18 and 19. It actually begins at the end of verse 17. So read this with me. That you being rooted and grounded in love and then here, here's the request, that you may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with the fullness of God. So this is about grasping the love of Christ more and more. And it's like the first request, request here, because we can never think that we've fully grasped Him. We can never think that we've arrived. We may think, yes, I know Christ loves me. I've been singing that since I was a little child. Jesus loves me, this I know. Every Christian knows this. That's the, one of the first things we latch onto when we first become a Christian, that God loves me through Jesus. Jesus loves me. But we know that, and yet we sometimes can think that we need to then move on from there to learn something else different than that, something else more profound. But look closely here. First, Paul assumes that we already do know something of Christ's love. So he's not praying that this, you know, this church doesn't know Jesus or His love. 
He assumes they already do. That's the starting point he gives here. He says that you, being rooted and grounded in love, so we're being rooted in love and grounded in love. Our roots are sinking deep into God's love. Our foundation is grounded and established on God's love. And then from there, what's, what's the continued prayer? That we would then have strength to comprehend what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses understanding. So we're to know this love, this expansive love that surpasses our ability to know, which means no one can say simply about the love of Christ, no one can say simply, yes, 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 I understand Christ's love. Give me something else, right? Yes, 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 I know how much He loves me. I'm good there. No, you can only say, I know something of Christ's love. There's more, infinitely more. There's an infinite height and depth and breadth to the love of Christ. So this is like, you know, trying to grasp the depths of outer space, right? A quick glance up at the night sky uh, is enough to make you stand in wonder. But a quick glance is really hardly anything, isn't it? As, as we keep learning more and more of what's out there, a quick glance is as incredible as that is. I mean, I looked at the stars this morning when it was still dark, and it, it was beautiful and shocking but I've also learned over time enough to know that that is just a small, small glimpse of what's actually out there and what's beautiful out there, right? I mean, it's even the difference between taking a, a picture, just snapping a picture of the night sky or leaving the shutter open. Or have you seen those time-lapse videos and you see the Milky Way? I mean, it's just incredible. It's this sheet of beauty. And then look at the Hubble telescope and just kind of zooming into one little tiny area out, out further and further. And you see this wonder world out there in every direction. And we don't know how far it goes. Does it keep going? Is it, who knows what's going on out there? I mean, it's incredible. And we have this little glimpse, and even that's enough to make us stand in wonder. That's like the love of Christ. And so it both makes us stand in wonder of what we already know. But it also lets us realize there is far more. Let's not get bored with the little we know, because it's, it's wonderful as it is, but let's also not even think we've come close to being shocked, as shocked as we could be about his, the depths of His love. And let's not think we move beyond it. So what is the love of Christ? Well, it's hard to describe. It is beyond our understanding. But Ephesians shows us glimpses. So look back at chapter 1. Let's look at a few places that mention His love. So first, the love of the Father for us in Ephesians 1.5 says, in love He predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ. So God's love goes from, begins in eternity past, and in love He set His heart on us before the world even existed. Then look at Ephesians chapter 2 verse 4. After talking about how we were dead in our trespasses and sins, not deserving an ounce of His favor, God would be just to just condemn us right there to hell forever. But instead, He makes us alive through Jesus. And then we read this, But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, He made us alive together with Christ. So the heart of the Father is overflowing with love toward us, overflowing toward us when we had no reason for Him to be drawn to us. Um, God does not rescue us because we're lovely. He rescues us and He makes us lovely. And He's not drawn to us because of anything attractive in us. He is drawn to us because it's an overflow of His own heart of love 
and he sets his affection on us from before we were even born. And then in time, he has Jesus die on the cross for us and rise again. And then when we're born and we live, we're dead in our sins. And then he says, come alive. And he makes us alive. It's because he loves us. And then here's the love of Christ for us. Ephesians 5, chapter, or chapter 5, verse 2. Now calls us to walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. So he, Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. And then look at verse 25. It says something similar. Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. It's, an Im- it's quite an image, isn't it? He's giving himself up for us. It's sacrificial language. He's giving himself to us and for us. So he became a human being. God the Son became a human being and grew up as a carpenter's son, entered ministry, served people with compassion and love and power and healed people and was rejected by many. And then what this is referring to is in particular the cross where he gave himself up for us as a sacrifice for our sins. He didn't need to go to the cross. He went there because love was driving him. And then as he's at the cross, he's experienced pain and suffering. The nails held him there, but his heart of love held him there more strongly because he was doing that for us. He was taking our sins upon himself and the wrath of God upon himself so that we do not have to experience it. He took our hell for us on the cross, gave himself up for us so that we wouldn't have to experience that even though that's exactly what we deserve. And then it took him all the way to the grave and he was buried And then three days after that, in the middle of history, he did rise again from the dead, and he pours out his spirit on us so that we can see him and see what he did for us and experience his love and be fully forgiven, never having to face God's wrath at all. That's his love. Elise Fitzpatrick gave a great definition of God's love. I think some of you have read Because He Loves Me. It's one of my favorite books. This is from a different book of hers with someone else called Counsel from the Cross, but here's a definition of God's love. It is a passionate, unwavering, joyous determination to do us good and to bestow upon our souls eternal happiness no matter what the cost. I'm going to read that again. God's love is a passionate, unwavering, joyous determination to do us good and to bestow upon our souls eternal happiness no matter what the cost. And what was the cost? It's what Paul mentioned. Jesus gave himself for us. So that's the love of God and the love of Christ that really surpasses understanding. And this is the love that we've just then begun to grasp, and we're called into a deeper experience of his love. So how can you and I tell if we are experiencing this love? How can you and I tell if we only have a very small grasp of his love that's not increasing. Well, here's a test. One way you know that you have a small grasp of Christ's love, and I know all of us actually, no matter what the grasp is, it's small, but relatively small and needing to grow. One way you can tell is that you're, you're not regularly surprised by Christ's love. I mean, think, think back in your own life. When was the last time that you were kind of shocked and in awe, and surprised, had a sense of wonder that he would love you as he does. 
I mean, the Christian life should feel like a continual succession of fresh discoveries of Christ's love. It should feel fresh and new because we're going deeper and deeper into it. Sometimes I've gone through stretches of basically, you know, assuming His love, and I'd agree that it's amazing. I'd agree that it's important. I'd sing about it, be happy about it in general, but really not emotionally engaging with it. But then I remember going through a season, this has happened several times, but a season where it all just kind of felt brand new to me. And I remember being so surprised and shocked by His love for me in light of who He is and His holiness and my sinfulness, and that He would go to the cross for me and set His affection on me, even from before the foundation of the world, just shocked by it all. That He did that for me. And I remember thinking, have I actually ever believed God loved me? Have I actually, have I known this? Because it, it seems like this is the first time that I'm even understanding. Has that ever felt, have, happened to you? Um, even though that wasn't the case. And that's happened many times since then. Where I'm kind of just so blown away and thinking, have I, have I ever even known this? Have I actually believed that God loves me? Like personally? Have I actually experienced his love? Um, but that's normative Christian life. I mean, the Paul just looks like he's freshly astonished all the time as he writes about God's love in letters like this. And sometimes in the Christian life, it will feel like a reconversion experience again. It's not that because we only receive this new heart once. But the way we grow as a Christian is going to feel like that sometimes because there's the same experiential dynamic at work as we grow as Christians that was at work when we become Christians, right? Knowing God's love, repenting, and believing. That's how we become Christians. That's how we grow as Christians. Surprised by His love and the wonder of it all, and then repenting of our unbelief and clinging to Him afresh more and more deeply, grasping more and more of His love. So, Here's how you can tell if you're deeply grasping God's love like Paul's praying for here. You have these moments of being surprised by His love, that He would love you, and that He loved you as much as He does. So, another question is, do you thank Him and praise Him for His love? Not just necessarily just singing the words, but like that John Wesley quote from earlier, right? You sing spiritually, meaning you're giving your mind and your thought and your attention to the sense of what you're singing, and you're offering your heart up to the Lord as you sing or as you pray through the week. Here's another way to see if we grasp Christ's love less than we might think we do. Do you say, you know, you say, I know Christ loves me, but then do you get incredibly depressed when people don't like you? The question is, why is that? And I'm speaking from my own experience here. Here's what may be going on. It's what often happens to me and has many times. It's because Christ is small to you in that moment, and other people are big, right? Jesus and His love, real to some degree. You know He loves you, but it's, a, it's not a really weighty reality in your mind and heart, right? It's like, yeah, okay, small thing. But this person whom I respect, man, that's weighty. And if they don't accept me or if they dislike me, I'm crushed. You see what's happening there? So, what would happen if we would repent of that and have Christ be central and weighty and His love be everything we need? And then someone else who doesn't like us or dismisses us or disapproves of us becomes a lighter reality. We may be discouraged. That's understandable. But we won't be crushed 
by that anymore. There's much more of Christ's love to grasp. So what's the goal of grasping Christ's love? The end of verse 19. That you may be filled with all the fullness of God. What does that mean? I'm not fully sure. I think it means at least two things. I say at least because this itself seems to be something that we can know, but it also goes beyond our understanding. So here's a start. First, I think this is another way of saying what he said in verse 17 already. Right? Verse 17 was his prayer that Christ may dwell in our hearts. That was the goal of being strengthened. And then here the prayer seems parallel, that we'd be filled with the fullness of God. So they're parallel in a lot of ways. This is about God dwelling in our hearts, in the core of our personalities and desires. It's about God becoming central to our affections and our lives. It's about going to work with God on our mind. It's about laying our head down at night with God on our mind, bringing our anxieties to Him rather than letting them swirl endlessly in our minds. It's about waking up and inviting God to be influential in our mind and our hearts through the day and dwell more fully in our hearts. It's about talking with someone and thinking in the middle of that conversation how to honor the Lord in the way that you treat that person or speak to that person or about another person. So this again, this is about having God become more and more central in our hearts. But second, it's about experiencing His personal presence. This is about being filled with God's fullness. Where else in the Bible, if you're familiar with the Bible, think Old Testament, where else do we see something filled with God's presence? The tabernacle, the temple, right? That was the place of God's presence among His people. God didn't dwell in individuals in that way. He dwelt among them, among the people of Israel, in the temple. Tabernacle, temple, built God's glory fills it. That's God's presence among His people. But after Jesus died and rose, uh, He treated the church as the temple. Jesus said He Himself was the temple, and then He calls all who trust Him to become, we're now becoming God's true and new temple. And Paul has this on his mind. I mean, look at the end of chapter 2. In chapter 2, verses 21 and 22, you can see that he says the church grows into a holy temple in the Lord. He says, in Christ, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. And then at the beginning of chapter 3, Paul went on to this kind of brief digression, and then he picks up his thought again, where he just left off in calling us a temple. And he picks that up with this prayer. And what does he pray? That God would fill us with all the fullness of God. So in other words, what's Paul saying? He's saying that we are the temple of God's presence now individually and then together as the church, we're the temple of God's presence, and He dwells among us and in us now. And so, the astonishing reality is that if you are a Christian, you are now part of God's temple. And He is happy to not just dwell near you, like the temple of old, but to dwell in you and with you. And we as a church are being built into a dwelling place of God where He's with us by His Spirit right now. And so Paul is praying then that we would experience the fullness of God's presence. We're experiencing it in part, and there's more. So he's praying. This isn't just saying thank you that this is a reality. This is beyond that now. This is praying that we would grasp more of Christ's love so that 
we would experience more of God's presence. We would be filled with all the fullness of God. So this is deeply experiential. I wonder, some of you, that fits right at home. For some of you, that may make you a little uncomfortable. What does it mean to experience the fullness of God, to be filled? I don't know what to do with that. So once again, like all over the place in the Bible, it's a both and that we hold together, not an either or. This isn't learning about Jesus' love and not experiencing Him, nor is it experiencing God's presence apart from learning, right? This is grasping uh, the love of Christ, and that's an intellectual pursuit in part, and it's experiencing Him and His presence by His Spirit. So those are the two requests. There's more of His strength to experience, there's more of His love to know, and now there's more of His power to expect. So this is what we see in this doxology at the end here in verses 20 and 21. So this teaches us third then to expect more from God's power. So doxologies like this one, they're about praising God for what only He can do. It's a statement of praise, and and these doxologies sound almost invariably something like, now to God be the glory. So that's a doxology. We do benedictions at the end of our services. Those are different. Benedictions are about expecting what only God can give us. So we say, um, now may the Lord do this. Now may He do this. That's a benediction. A doxology is praise. Now to Him be glory. And so that's what this is. And so Paul moves from this moment of pray to this moment of praise right in the middle of the letter. He stopped in the middle of his letter to pray and then to praise God. So this is what real Christianity does to us, right? Mid-letter writing, midday, mid-meal, mid-conversation, mid-Bible reading, stop, pray, thank God, praise Him. That's what's happening here. So Paul stops, and he prays, and he praises God, and what does he give God glory for? You can read it with me. Now to Him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to Him be glory in the church, and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. Let's follow his logic here. Paul has just prayed a couple expansive prayers beyond what I usually would think to pray. Massively expansive, that we'd be strengthened with power for Christ to dwell in our hearts, that we'd know the love of Christ beyond understanding. And now, he says, God can do far more abundantly than anything we could ask or think. In other words, what Paul just thought to ask is not even the fullness of what he knows God can do for us. Isn't that amazing? Uh, someone pointed that out to me this week, just meeting with some, uh, some of you to study this text in preparation for this sermon, and what an amazing reality. I mean, I thought this prayer was expansive, and then Paul prays it and then says, God's able to do way more than I even just asked. Amazing. Here's the point then. God is not limited by even the biggest of our prayers. He's not limited by what we can think of. And for us, that's good news because it means that we can pray big. We can pray expansively. He invites us to pray big and expansively. And it also means that God won't even be limited by those prayers, which means He can do above and beyond what we're asking and thinking. And this is really good news. He's doing stuff even when we don't ask Him. He's not limited to our prayers. So He invites us to pray and then He'll respond. And aren't we so grateful that He's doing stuff all the time that we're not even thinking about? He's not not limited 
by our prayers. This gives us incredible personal hope. Think of that part of your life where you maybe think you just cannot change. Maybe it's a, a sinful habit, feels enslaving, maybe it's an addiction, and you just feel there is no hope. I've been trying, and I've been trying for decades. This is just not going to change. This prayer and this praise says, never give up hope. God is able to do above and beyond anything you can ask or think. He can set you free. We can see the power of addiction broken in our lives. So what should this lead us to do in our lives? Here's a few responses, all related to prayer, given that this is a prayer. First, let's pray responsively. You see how Paul began this prayer? He said, for this reason, I bow my knees to the Father. So his prayer is a response to what he said before this. Paul has been celebrating God's goodness and His graciousness to us in Jesus and how God has poured out spiritual blessings on us. He's made us alive. He's adopted us. He's forgiven us. He's given us new life and a new identity in Christ. So in light of all of this, Paul says, for this reason, I'm going to bow my knees and pray. I'm stopping in the middle and I'm going to pray. And so we pray responsibly. That's how prayer can function. When we think about God and His love and His power and His grace, it should lead us to a response of prayer even spontaneously. Paul's stopping halfway through his letter to pray here. So I encourage you, and you know, there's many times when I've kind of, in reflecting on this, realized either reading the Bible or reading a book or even talking to someone, uh, the reality of God's kindness has come to mind. And I've even had this like, maybe even somewhat subconscious hunch, like I should just thank Him right now. And I don't, because I think, it's, well, this isn't like the time to pray. I'm in the middle of something. It's like, no, stop, you know. Um, just do what Paul did. So I'm, I'm learning this as well. Just stop spontaneously wherever you are, whatever you're doing. Just praise him. Thank him. Pray for him or pray for people. Pray to him. And Paul's prayer is effusive here. You can see his tone. This is an experiential prayer. You can feel his emotion. So how does someone pray like this? How, how do you if you don't feel like this kind of emotion and tone fits your life, how do you get there? Well, you get there by doing what Paul did. He's responding uh, to his meditations on God and the gospel. So if you want to pray like Paul, you have to meditate like Paul. By meditation, I don't mean the practice of emptying our minds. I mean filling it with God's Word and with truth. So I know many of you are using this ZF Ephesians immersion plan, and you're immersing yourself in the book of Ephesians. And so here's what this text adds to it. It means that as you immerse yourself in the book of Ephesians and as your mind gets filled with this truth of God's grace, stop whenever you want and just praise Him for it and pray that this would be more of a reality in your life. And if you're not spending time in God's Word um, in any measure in a daily, regular life kind of way, then you're missing one of the keys to a vibrant prayer life. Because meditation on the love of Christ is what leads to this kind of prayer. Don Carson put it this way. I've shared this quote before because it's so helpful. It's from his book, Praying with Paul. He said, a genuine and deep perception of the love of Christ rarely comes to the person who is not spending much time in the Scriptures. Paul prayed the way he did because he was immersed in the Scriptures. And we see the fruit of that in his meditations in chapters 1 and 2 and 3. And then he overflows with this kind of prayer. So pray responsively. Bring Scripture meditation into your prayer life. Uh, in the order, read God's Word, meditate on it, and then pray in light of it. Use this text. Just pray through this text. Second, pray in community. 
Uh, Paul's not just thinking about individual lives here. Verse 18, he says that you may have strength with all the saints to know what's the breadth and length and height and depth and no love of Christ. So grasping Christ's word is deeply personal, but it isn't private. Um, John Supica made this point so well a few weeks ago in his sermon, right, looking through the book of Ephesians and just showing how discipleship is a community project. We cannot grow as disciples apart from the church. And so even here, we don't just pray this privately, but we, we do this together. We grasp Christ's love with all the saints, and then we pray together. So as you pray together, uh, do it one-on-one through the week when you meet or as small groups. And I'd encourage you when you meet as small groups to, you know, if you're in the habit of just sharing prayer requests and then maybe just someone gives a closing prayer, actually spend time praying together. And then even if you pray in light of the prayer requests, make sure that when you actually start praying, you go way above and beyond what was maybe just shared, because typically we share things that are personal and important to us, but we want to pray this kind of prayer too for our whole church. So let's pray for our church family when we gather together. The Lord would do this kind of uh, work in our lives. And husbands and fathers, I encourage you to take responsibility for prayer in your families. Uh, Families are like little churches. I'm reading the letters of John Newton right now in the mornings, and he wrote a letter to someone just encouraging him to lead his family in prayer. And so he said this. He said, God requires us to acknowledge him in our families, not for our own sakes, not because he has need of our poor services, but because we have need of his blessing. Isn't that great? So there's no strict rules here. The Bible doesn't say when we need to do this as families or what it needs to look like. So really, if you're, if you're just getting started out, I just encourage you, read part of the Bible, pray in light of it, and then do it in the morning or the evening whenever you all, you all can gather together. Finally, pray humbly. Paul said in verse 14, I bow my knees before the Father. It's not the only way to pray. Sometimes people stand or walk or sit, but this posture shows us a posture of humility. And we're embodied creatures, so I'd encourage you, if you're not in the habit of kneeling down, if you're physically able, to do that sometimes when you pray, or to stand and look to heaven as you pray. Jesus did that on occasion, we read. And the Lord has made us mind and soul and body together so we can express to Him with our whole self our humble dependence. So why don't we pray together now? And just, I'll just lead us in praying through this prayer together. And if you want and you're physically able, why don't you get on your knees? I'm going to do it as well. Paul did it here. Figure we can do it. Don't have to. Let's pray. Father, we come to you in the name of Jesus in light of all of your incredible blessings that you give to us. We are aware of your lavish grace and mercy and love for us through Jesus. We're so grateful that you have sent your son to die and rise. Lord Jesus, we're thankful that you gave yourself up for us on the cross and rose again. And Spirit, we're thankful that you have made us alive by changing our hearts from deep within. And so, Father, for these reasons, we are bowing our knees and our hearts before you. And we we say thank you for your lavish grace to us. And we pray that you would bless us and encourage us in the ways that we've been thinking about today, that according to the riches of your glory, you would grant us individually and as a church to be strengthened with power in our inner being, 
We pray that you would do this so that Christ may dwell in our hearts through faith. So please strengthen our faith. Help us to make the Lord Jesus central in our affections. We pray that you would cause us to be further rooted and grounded in love. We pray that you would give us strength to comprehend together now and through the week and in coming days that we would be strengthened to grasp and comprehend your love for us in Jesus that is beyond our understanding. And we pray that this would happen so that we may be filled with all of your fullness. Thank you for making us the temple of your presence and we pray that you would fill us. And we pray that you would do above and beyond anything we could ask or think. And we pray this because you are worthy of receiving all glory in us as your church and in the Lord Jesus. Amen. Stand for benediction from God's Word. And just a reminder, if you are relatively newer here, uh, we'll meet together for Meet ZF uh, in the library in just a few moments. Now may the love of God our Father and the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the power and presence of the Holy Spirit be with us all. Amen. Go in peace.